Hey, if you're just uh, checking in with us maybe for the first time or you haven't been following our series of messages on the church, let me kind of bring you up to speed a little bit. A few weeks ago, we started doing a series on what does it mean to really be the church? What is the definition of the church? We're trying to get kind of a general working definition of what does it look like to be the church? And a couple of weeks ago, we illustrated it this way. See, um, if you take a stool like this, the one I'm sitting on, it's got four legs, and every one of those legs is essential to the balance of the stool. I'm not going to be able to sit comfortably and safely on this stool if all four legs aren't strong. You take one of those legs away and they fall. So we've been talking about these four legs that kind of hold up the foundation of the church. And those are love, unity, worship, and ministry. Those are the four legs that we're saying are essential to what it is for us to be the church. Now, there's a lot of broader definitions of the church. There's a lot more detail that we could get into, but we're going to focus on just those four things, love, unity, worship, and ministry. And we covered love the last couple of weeks. And if you remember, two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 1. And we got all the way to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we saw Jesus kind of giving people this great commission, uh, you know, uh, resounding the great commission, when he basically said, listen, you're going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth, you're going to be my witnesses. I'm going to change the world through you, church. And he got ready to ascend into heaven and he said, but... But the last thing he said before he went was, wait, go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Spirit comes, you'll receive power so that you can be my witnesses. And he ascended into heaven. And that was 40 days, right, that they had spent with the resurrected Jesus. Now they go to Jerusalem and for 10 days, they are in the upper room, basically all gathered. It's the disciples plus some others. There's about 120 followers of Christ at that time. And they're all gathered in this second story of this building where they're praying, worshiping and waiting. And they don't even know what they're waiting on. But after 10 days, we pick up the story in Acts chapter 2 when they find out what they were waiting on. So if you've got a Bible today, I want to invite you to open to the New Testament, to the book of Acts. So it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. So go to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to pick up the story at the very beginning of Acts chapter 2. Now follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, 
Why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the district of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They're full of sweet wine. Now let me give you some context. I want you to understand. There's, there's some big, big, big days in the history of the Christian church. And, and because of that, these are really the biggest days in the history of the world. Think about it. There's the day that Jesus is born, the incarnation, right? That's, we celebrate that every year at Christmas. There's the day that Jesus was crucified and died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. We celebrate that every year on Good Friday. There is the day that Jesus rose from the grave and defeated death on our behalf. And we celebrate that every year on Easter and then there's the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is the day when the church is born. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, fills believers with the Spirit, and empowers them to boldly be witnesses for the message of Jesus Christ. These are the four gigantic days in human history. These are the four gigantic days in the plan of God. And today we're going to pick up this story at the day of Pentecost. Now, there was a feast of the Jews called the Feast of Pentecost. And, and this feast was a, was a feast that was a harvest feast. So picture this. They would farm and work and, and then harvest their crops. And then after all of that season of just diligent labor, now they had a bumper crop and now they wanted to celebrate. And so they want to thank God and praise him. Jews would come together from all over and they would have this gigantic day after day feast where they celebrated. Now picture a wedding reception that goes on for days. This is a party. Picture a family reunion where everybody comes together from out of town and out of state and you have a hundred you know, relatives all in one place and they're there for a week and every day is a barbecue, every day is a party, there's stuff going on every day. That's what the Feast of Pentecost was like for the Jews every year. Jerusalem would swell to like 10 to 20 times its normal population. The place would just be packed with people and everybody is there to party. It is like a tailgate at a UCLA Bruins game. Just as far as you can see, there's just people having a great time. That's what's happening at Pentecost. It's this huge celebration. By noon, everybody is starting to uh, break out the alcohol. People are firing up the grills. And by evening, people are dancing with lampshades on their head. Okay, That's what's going on at Pentecost every year in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is overflowing. Everybody's having a good time. And the followers of Jesus are waiting they're in the upper room, they're praying, they're praising God, and they're waiting. And that is when the Holy Spirit shakes up the party. Now listen, it, it's described for us in the verses we just read. There is a sound 
like a violent rushing wind. It's not a wind. It's not some sort of hurricane or tornado, but it sounds like one. It's just a sound that comes out of nowhere. It's like a freight train going through your living room. Everybody stops. Everybody takes notice. Everybody sees that this sound is concentrated around the building where the disciples are. And they begin to be drawn to that place. And I love this description. Whenever you're describing the power of the Holy Spirit, it's hard to put into words. It says, it's like the sound of a violent rushing wind. It's not a violent rushing wind. It's just like that somehow. It's like there are, there are flames of uh, tongues of flame that are resting above the heads of the church. The believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody starts praising God and proclaiming the gospel. But what makes it particularly weird is that they're praising God and proclaiming the gospel in languages they have never learned. Now, we don't know how many languages are being uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit here. We don't know how many languages are being spoken, but everyone there heard someone speaking in his native language. Look at verse 7. Listen to this. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all of these speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language or dialect to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and districts around Libya and the Cyrene had visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Needless to say, this is a freaky scene. It has got everyone's attention. Something crazy is going on and nobody knew what to think. And verse 12 tells us that everyone was amazed and that everyone was astonished at what they were seeing and hearing. But verse 13 tells us something about some others. Look again, verses 12 and 13. And they all continued in amazement in great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Hey, they're drunk. Now, I don't know who these others were, and I'm not sure who they were accusing of being drunk. But verse 12 tells us that all of the ones who witnessed this, all of them were amazed. And so I'm guessing that these others must be ones who arrived late and were hearing this from the people who experienced it. And it seems like maybe the ones they're accusing of being drunk are the ones who are telling the story. You guys must be drunk. Because when Peter responds, he doesn't say, we are not drunk. He says, these men are not drunk as you assume. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Look at verse 15. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. The day for the Jews starts at 6 a.m., so this is 9 a.m. And he's saying, people don't get drunk at 9 a.m. We would not have a massive drunken crowd at 9 a.m. Now, who are these men? Well, verses 9 through 11 tells us that they're people who come from every region and they speak in every dialect around that area. And again, you know, Medes, Parthians, Mesopotamians, Phrygians, Pamphylians, uh, Egyptians, and the list goes on and on and on. That is a lot of diversity. Languages that are different. Customs that are different. Skin color that is different. Ancestry 
that is different. Traditions that are different. These people, all these people, have very, very little in common. There are a thousand things that separate them. But God is about to do something miraculous. Do you know, on American money, there's a Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, from many, one. And, and we strive for that in this country and we fall miserably short. But that is God's plan for his church. From the many, one. These are the people who were going to be transformed by the Holy Spirit's presence in their lives. These are the people who are going to submit their lives to Christ. These are the people who are going to become the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. Against the church. Against us. And Peter, in the midst of all of this confusion, stands up, quiets the crowd, gets everybody's attention, and preaches a message from the book of Joel explaining what's going on. Listen, our prophets have been telling us from of old, the Messiah is coming. When the Messiah comes, it, enters, it ushers in the last days. When the last days come, the Spirit of God is going to be poured out. People are going to speak in other tongues. They're going to prophesy. They're going to heal. They're going to do miracles. Amazing things are going to happen. And he explains this in a sermon from the book of Joel. Now, pick it up with me in verse 37, because at the end of this sermon, Peter says, hey, you need to repent and be saved. And in verse 37, here it is. Now, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. At the beginning of the day, there were 120 followers of Jesus gathered in the upper room. By the end of Peter's sermon, there were 3,000 new followers of Christ. When the Holy Spirit came, he brought power. When the Holy Spirit came, he infused their message with strength. When the Holy Spirit came, he came to change lives. I guess the Holy Spirit was worth waiting for. Because when the Holy Spirit showed up, the church was born. And when the church was born, the world was transformed. And who were these people called the church? These 3,000, who were they? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, people from Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Romans, Cretans, Arabs, and more. I hope you're not missing this. Do you see the unbelievable diversity in the church? We think, well, you know, God started the church with this the bunch of Jews from Jerusalem. He started the church with cultures and races of all kinds, brought them together in one place, and filled them with the Holy Spirit. 
Many of these people undoubtedly came for the feast from surrounding regions and never went home. Once they came to know Christ, they stayed. And this became their new home, and the other Christians became their new family. Now, if you look at this, there's a group of people who have nothing in common. There's this crazy time that nobody's in control of. And you're launching a church out of this. You would look at that and say, this is a disaster waiting to happen. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Look at verse 42 and we'll bring this home. It's amazing what happens. They were continually, who's they? These people, these diverse people, these people with different dialects, different skin tones, different cultures. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Look at verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Well, wait a second. I thought we said this was a diverse group. I thought we said they were from different places. I thought we said they were from different races. I thought we said they spoke different languages. How can you say they had all things in common? Here it is. Because when you have Jesus in common, everything else becomes secondary. It's not that everything else goes away. It's not that your racial background doesn't matter. It's not that your culture goes, uh, fades into the background. It's that all of those things become secondary. When we have Jesus in common, we have all that we need in common. Verse 45 tells us that they selflessly took care of each other's needs. Nobody among them had to fight for their dignity to be upheld. There was no uh, factions of people having to struggle to be recognized and heard and respected because there were no factions among them. Verse 46 says they were of one mind. And that's no small detail. In fact, Luke gives us this point uh, many, many times in the book of Acts. In fact, in the first five chapters of Acts, he mentions this five times. Acts 1.14, they were of one mind. Acts 2.44, they had all things in common. Acts 2.46, they were of one mind. Acts 4.32, they were of one heart and soul. Acts 5.12, they were in one accord. He, he emphasizes this point again and again and again. These people who are so diverse, these people who are so different. See, when we have Christ in common, that's enough. All the church that gathered together that day had Christ in common. And all the things that made them different actually became a strength to the early church. The church became this beautiful tapestry of woven threads of various colors. Well, listen, 
I decided to preach on unity in the church long before the unrest that has erupted in our society. Believe it or not, I did not plan all of this stuff so that it would make my sermon seem more culturally relevant. God laid this message on my heart a long time ago. It's almost like God knew that his church was going to need to hear about the beauty of what we have in common and the power of unity. We are living in trying times. And in all these issues that are so polarizing, there's a pressure to choose a side and then stick with your side and let your side speak for you. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about politics or whether we're talking about your views of what should be done about COVID-19 or whether we're talking about the unrest in our society today, the protests and all of those issues. Listen, we all have our opinions. We all have different racial, or racial ancestries. We all live in different neighborhoods. We all support different political candidates. We all have our views on how to stay healthy during this time of pandemic. And all of those things are important. I'm not saying they're not. They matter to God and they should matter to us. But those things don't define us as Christians. As Christians, we're not defined by who we are. We're defined by whose we are. Race, nationality, political party, gender, a protester, police officer, mask wearer, or unhindered by the virus. If you are a Christian, you are a child of God. We all have one father. We all belong to the same kingdom. We all have the same purpose in life. And we're all going to live together in eternity so we better get used to each other. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans 12. If you're in Acts, just turn one book to the right and find the book of Romans. We're going to take a glance at Romans 12. And at Romans 12, beginning in verse 1, here's what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are living sacrifices, Christians. We're not uh, to be pressed into the mold of the culture around us. The world does not get to define the people of God. God has already defined us both individually and as a group. Look at Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Let me, let me sum that up. It ain't about you. That's what Paul's trying to say. Look at verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Then he talks about how we all have different gifts and all of us are supposed to be using our gifts for the church. And if you skip down with me to verse 9, here's what he says. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. 
Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, don't think you've got it all figured out. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but, be over, but overcome evil with good. Listen, I don't expect those who don't know Christ to live like that. But we're the church. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God. We have the hope of eternity. The grace and power of God is within us. And with the grace and power of God, we can do this, church. We can step up our game. We can live above these petty differences and cling to what unites us in Christ. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God's not just saying that to just one person. He's saying it to his whole church as a unit. As a single body made up of many members, just like the church of the first century, we face many obstacles. Cultural differences, various political convictions that are deeply held, different life experiences, different mental models, a government that isn't working in, a, uh, in tandem with the church. And for the time being, we don't even get to gather together in buildings as a whole family. Just like the church in Acts, we face an uphill climb. But just like them, we are the blood-bought, spirit-filled family of God. We are one, one body, one spirit, one father, and one mission to love God, love people, and change the world. We may be in different places today, but now's the time for us to join hands. One body, one mind, one spirit, one love, one Lord. What God has brought together, let no man tear apart. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives and that it's not just on an individual basis, but as a whole church that we can experience the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. God, help us to put away the petty differences. Help us to look beyond those things that we don't have in common and instead champion that which we do have in common, the risen Lord and the filling of the Holy Spirit. God, we pray you would make your church a light in this world in a time when that light is desperately needed. Father, bond us together in the spirit of unity. Make us one, and as we are one, change the world through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.